Good. What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome back, Nightmare Success listeners. So I know you guys come here for the good stuff, and uh, I've got something good, really inspiring story. And it's, you know, we talk about on this show what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt? How do you survive? Well, I think maybe one of the biggest nightmares anybody could have is that you get pulled aside one day and somebody says that you are accused of a murder that you didn't do. And that becomes a spiral that you get convicted of a murder that you didn't do. And you get life without parole. Well, and you get 20 and, and you get 24 years of fighting every day to prove your innocence to finally get free. I've got Daryl Burton here, and he is that guy. He is the guy that lived that life and lived that nightmare, and he is here to share his story. Daryl Burton, so happy to have you here uh, making the time. <laughs> we, we actually set up earlier today, and, and uh, Daryl was getting his car serviced, and and uh, the guy needed the the office. So we said, wait, wait, we got it. We got to redo this. So here we are. We're set up. Daryl, welcome. Well, thank you, thank you, Brett. I'm happy to be with you. So, Daryl, this is um, one of those things that happens in our justice system that everybody, when they hear about it, they just like, oh man, how in the world could that happen? How in the world could something like that happen? And it happened to you, and you lived it. Um, let's walk back a little bit. Take us back to Daryl Burton growing up in St. Louis as a kid. What was life like with Daryl Burton as a kid? Well, I mean, as a kid, I grew up in the city of St. Louis, a little bit south of Ferguson, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Big family, large family, nine uh, of us, nine siblings. Uh, it was nine of us all together. And then my grandmother had nine children, so I had a lot of cousins. Big family. And most of the families in the community were large families. But as a kid, you know, you're in the sports, you're playing, you know, with other kids and, you know, and you're with your cousins, you're doing. And the, back then in the day when I grew up, tumbling was the thing, gymnastics. Yeah. And if you couldn't tumble, you wasn't cool. That was the thing. So you had to know how to flip. And so, you had to know how to know, flip. <laughs> you had to know how to flip, man. Yeah, you had to be a flipper. So if you weren't flipping, you know, nobody, you know, you didn't get any any kind of attention from anybody, especially the girls, the girls, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine being in that yeah. big a family and then having that many cousins along with it. I mean, life had to just be, well, I mean, in, in your household, um, mom, dad, is, is everybody living in the house? Is it just, yeah, this was, this was my grandmother's house and everybody pretty much lived in my grandmother's house. Except some of my aunts, some of my aunts, they lived, they had their own, you know, uh, homes with their family, with their, you know, children, but my grandmother was, she was the matriarch of the family and everybody gathered at grandmama's mm -hmm. house. Then my mom and dad, they moved and got their own house. My mom's still in that house right now today. Yeah. Uh, but they both, my grandmother and my mother uh, and my aunts, men have became single parents because, you know, I mean, as in relationships, sometimes people get divorced, they split. Yeah. And they had to still raise these kids. But uh, I mean, as kids, you know, we don't know. I mean, we knew we were poor, but you still, we had fun, you know, it was yeah. uh, exciting times. When you're a kid, you know, you see the world in a way where that's what it says, like, and, you know, going to God and the kingdom of God is like children, you know, it's just like being, you know, uh, filled with joy and happiness and, you know, and filled with ideas that, you know, you can do anything, right. you know, and that the world is just, it's, 
is waiting at your uh, every beck and call. And so that's how it was for me growing up. You know, you see, I, I saw everybody, you know, in the way that I saw myself, just genuinely good people, nice people, and just trying to make a way for themselves and take care of those uh, who they liked and loved. What were your high school years like? Well, high school years, I didn't get a chance to finish high school. I mean, I went to high school and I dropped out, got kicked out, uh, got in trouble as a young person, you know, uh, at about 16, 17. Then I went back to high school. I was trying to go back to high school, uh, soda in high school, yeah. and, and which I got in. And I talked to the academic counselor who said, you know, you're so far behind in your credits. Uh, you can make the grade because academic wise, you know, I was good in both athletics and academics. I was competitive in both. A couple of girls used to make a little bit better grade than me. And uh, I didn't like that. They were, <laughs> I thought they were cheating. <laughs> but uh, but no, I was I was I was told that she said, you know, you're going to be 21 years old if you, you know, go back to school and, you know, and try to get caught up. You might as well go get your GED. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, well, what can I do that? She said, well, the Board of Education, go and take the GED test. And then, you know, if you get your GED, then you can just and, Roll in college and go to a community college. So that's what I did. It took me four weeks to get my GED. And uh, and I enrolled in college right before I got, you know, wrongfully convicted and sent to prison. Yeah. Okay. So Daryl, let's let's walk through that because you're you're in the midst of, you know, when you're that age, you know, the kind of everybody's doing what they're doing. You're getting your GED, you're getting into college. Um how did how does this all happen for you? What how does it transpire that you just get pulled out of your world into a nightmare? Well, I mean, what happened is uh, I went and saw my parole officer because I, like I said, I had gotten in trouble. I was about seventeen and got in trouble with the with the law uh, for burglary, and I did that. I admitted to that and was doing my time, did my time, and I was on parole. A few months left, and I went and saw the parole officer. And his parole officer called the police and came and arrested me, you know, for this murder. And they said I was responsible for the murder of a gentleman named uh, Donald Ball. And uh, the family members of, you know, of the victim, they were the ones who suggested my name to the police and tried to say that the feud or the motive was over a girl who had been dating the victim or allegedly dating a cousin of mine, which still don't have anything to do with me, except we cousins, brothers, we're right. a close family. So you, sure. if you mess with one, you mess with them all. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't true. And I'm glad. And the lady, she wouldn't come to court and she wouldn't lie for the prosecutors and the police. She said, no, that's not true. Cause she didn't date the victim. Hadn't dated him in over a year and she never dated my cousin. So, so, uh, but if, that's where they arrested me. If I remember right, Daryl reading some of the, cause you, you know, some of the stuff that you read online, is right and some of it's murky and um did you get pulled into a lineup yes yes i got pulled into a lineup that's right and um and of course (laughs) as with all lineups you know the police they tell whoever you know these witnesses are they tell them who to pick so i don't i don't remember exactly you know what number i was in the lineup i i can't remember going back that far. But I was in a lineup. I was in a couple of lineups, I believe, because uh, there was a couple of witnesses, snitch witnesses, police paid informants. And uh, they pulled me, they picked me out of the lineup, which bound me over for trial. And so I was, uh, I was uh, the suspect who eventually became uh, the defendant in a trial uh, for capital murder, facing the death penalty. So, Daryl, I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, because I think that living in America, that's everybody's worst nightmare is that you get pulled into a lineup. You know, you see it on the movies. You know, these people get lined up and you got somebody that's standing behind a, you know, a, a glass, you know, that you can't see. They can see over uh, and they can't see you and, and, and you get picked out of that. And then they pull you out of there and they tell you you're the guy What's going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking at, at first, I'm thinking, well, I mean, because I know I'm innocent. No one is going to pick me out of a lineup because they would be lying. Right. That's just what I thought. And so and I'm I'm pretty confident and sure that when they take me out of this lineup, 
they're going to say, okay, well, you know, we got the wrong guy. Release me. Mm-hmm. And then I would go mm-hmm. home. But it didn't happen like that. When I came, when they came you know, and finished the lineup, when they came inside of the, you know, like I said, it's got this two-way mirror and came inside of this room, they told all the other guys to leave or go back to the, you know, they sail or whatever. And then they proceeded to take me in to another area to process me uh, for the crime of capital murder, you know. And so uh, it was unbelievable. It was a, it was basically a shock and I was confused, but I still believed in the system. I said, man, no, no one goes to prison or to jail who are, who's innocent. I just, I didn't, I didn't believe that would happen. Well, I and think I that's, thought I think that's 1984. The... Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, 1984. I thought I was the only person in the world this has ever happened to. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking. It's just this is this. They're going to resolve this, and they're going to figure it out. Now, these your your family. They how, how do they how, do they find out about this? How do they find out about this? Yeah, well, they find out about it. I mean, of course, you know, I get a phone call. I was able to call home and yeah. make a call and connect with my family and told them. And of course. Uh, my family, you know, believed in me. They believed in my innocence because we knew the victim. Right. He was the best friend of my older brother. We knew the guy. Mm-hmm. We always, you know, like I say, we run in the same neighborhood. And, and that's why they said there was no motive. They never did say what the motive was. In fact, they said, we don't have a motive. and We don't need one. But I got two people saying that, you know, Daryl did it. And that's what, you know, sent me to prison. But uh, my family and some of his family members you thought that I was, you know, innocent also for a a very long time. But then you got some of his, his family also feel like I'm responsible and that's not going to change even to this day. Well, and I think one of the things that's interesting when you look back on, on uh, the details of this story, uh, the person who was murdered was shot the year before and uh, yeah. it didn't kill him obviously, but they never investigated that person as a potential um a person that could have done this crime and the, which is, you know, you, 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 you read through this and you think how in the world could that happen? But, you know, a lot of times what happens is, is that law enforcement can set up a narrative, drive that narrative. I mean, you can see it, you know, you, you watch Dateline and all these different things where people, they get locked in on something, a subject, and then they, they, they put blinders on and all like the most obvious things they don't even look at because they've got this narrative of this is the way that we're going to go after this. This is the way we're going to do it. What were you thinking as far as, as, you know, I, I, as I was re- reading there, you got, you had a pl- public defender. Um, how did that all come about for you? Did you, did you, did you just meet this person and they came in and they said, Hey, I'm defending you. And, Here's what we're going to do. How did that all work for you? Well, I had several public defenders prior to the one that I ended up going to trial with. They just kept switching lawyers. Uh, just they, I mean, and I didn't know what, how the process was yeah. supposed to work. But I, I eventually ended up with a public defender who I saw one time for one hour. That was it. And what I learned is something you just spoke about, Brett, is that this guy had shot this man a year prior. But that was one shooting. He had shot the man three different times. Wow. Three times before he finally shot and killed this guy because they was fighting over drug turf. It was two gangs. You know, they was fighting over this. It was a drug war. Yeah. It's like the Al Capone (laughs) back in the day. It was a modern day drug war over drug turf. You know, and they was, you know, this involved these guys. They was, you know, gangsters and pimps and drug lords. That's what they did. And the judge, the prosecutor, and my lawyer knew about that, and they agreed not to let the jury hear about that. That the man shot him three separate occasions, not in the same episode, three separate occasions, and they knew that. I didn't find this out to some, you know, some time, some years later. But I'm saying, how could you say you about justice when you have this guy who's a suspect who's still out there on the streets? Yeah. A couple of years later, he got killed also, you know, by you know some of those rival gangs, but. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if I and I, again reading some of this stuff, you know the were you not even in town? I was not even in town, man. I was in another state, the state of Washington, in Tacoma, Washington, 
And I told the lawyer that. And I said, look, go get the airline tickets. Go and talk to, you know, my friend, my best friend. He's up there. You know, I got an alibi. Oh, we don't need to do that. Like I said, I saw the lawyer one time, so I didn't get a chance to convince this lawyer to do anything. And the lawyer said, that's on the burden is on the state. You know, you, you don't have to prove it, uh, uh, anything. But that's not so. <laughs> no. You have to prove something. I mean, I'm telling you, they say the presumption of innocence stays with the defendant. No, not, not necessarily. You know, when you get charged with something, you got to prove that you're innocent. You have to put up a defense. That's just the way it is. And so uh, I, it sounds good in theory, you know, that you're presumed innocent. But in reality, no, you are presumed guilty. When you come into a courtroom for a charge like that, jurors automatically get a preconception that, hey, if the prosecution arrested this person, well, they must have, you know, evidence to say that this is the one who did it. And then they parade in out of this case with me is out of whole cloth. It's just a pack of lies. But yeah. they parade all these people in, and uh, and the jury, what the jury is going to think? They're going to think, well, the prosecutor must have, you know, the evidence. Uh, but this is just, like I say, a pack of lies, man. This case was built out of whole cloth of nothing but lies. Well, and and and, and it was. I mean, looking back at what was going on, you had the person that was at the gas station where the where the murder happened, and that person said this was a light skinned person that was about five four five five. You're a dark-skinned person that's 5'10", 5'11". So that alone was, was something. The other people were brought in. They said they were, they were around there. They weren't even where they could see it. And, you know, the, those two people were also given something to say, hey, listen, say this, and we'll go lighter with you on this. That's the one thing that I think, Daryl, is, is important for people to, to know about how these things happen. The jury, as you said, they come in with the perception that this person obviously has done something bad or they wouldn't have taken the time to go through this whole process, bring us to this point, select this jury, get this judge here, unless that person did something really bad. And what you just said, the presumption of innocence, yes, it says that. It is, it is in the words, but the feel and the vibe is when you walk in that you're guilty and you have to prove yourself. And, you know, that attorney was writing on the words and not knowing the world of what it really was. Because if you can't defend yourself, then the jury's going to take whatever the prosecution says and that's going to be it. You know, the uh, one of the things I think is interesting in our justice system, the federal system, this was a state case. The federal system has a grand jury where you go in and people think, well, the, a grand jury means that both sides are heard. You've got the prosecution and you've got the defense. That's not how it works at all. A grand jury, you walk in and the prosecution only presents their case and they listen to that, and then they decide if they're going to charge or not. That's exactly, if you flip that, what your situation was, is that she just let the prosecution present their case, and there was a defense that was presented. <coughs> so what is the jury going to do? The jury's going to accept what the prosecution says, because that's their story. And I think fr from what I understand, this went on for, I think, three days, this case. They brought in these different witnesses and snitches and whatever that were getting off on different things. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, Daryl, but did the jury only deliberate for like 30, 45 minutes? Oh, you're absolutely right, Brett. Yes, 30, 40 minutes. If, I mean, that may be stretching it. They went out for about an hour. I mean, I can't remember exactly what time it was. It went out like 10 o'clock, 10, whatever it was. But they came right back at 11, right before lunchtime, right before 12, if I if remember serving me correctly. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, it took 20 minutes to go to walk <laughs> to the jewelry room and back at least 20 minutes. Sure. And so I'm thinking, what did they deliberate? Uh, man, they, you know, they had me convicted before they left you know, the courtroom. I was, they had already made up in their minds that I was, you know, the person responsible for this man's, for his death. And, uh, and I wasn't. And, uh, but, 
you know, I mean, it's just like in the courtroom, see, this is how this stuff is so organized and controlled. You don't just get a chance to talk. You got to answer questions. You know, you don't get a chance to just get up there and just say, look, you know, and I, I could have got up there and got passionate, just like I'm a little passionate with you now. Mm-hmm. No, you just, the prosecutor going to ask questions, you answer it, you know, and the judge would try to, it would control you if you just try to speak and start talking. And so, it, you know, it is a, it is a control setting and it's controlled and slanted toward the prosecution. And the judge in this case was pro-prosecution and, and the jurors can pick that up. And yeah. so, and the jury, and they pick up even my so-called public defender, which I call a public pretender, pretending to defend me. This person called me by the defendant, didn't even call me by my name, called me the defendant. The defendant, ladies and gentlemen, was calling me the same thing the prosecutor was calling me, the defendant. So, I mean. Doesn't it was, humanize it you at a, all. Yeah, exactly. So it was, uh, yeah, so, it was. So, Daryl, when you, when you, when they come back role. in. Classic When they come back in. Go ahead. They come back in, and and you know that this hasn't taken very long, and they come out, and they pronounce you guilty. What 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 is rolling through your mind at that point? What what do you what what's what's I mean? What does a person think? At that point, I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I was angry, confused. I mean, every emotion that you could that you could feel, you know, inside of yourself, at, at least for me, is what I felt. I felt, you know, rage. I felt, you know, that these people here just didn't listen to anything. And, uh, and I was angry at the jurors. I was. Sure. You know, and sure. I, was ang- I was angry at the entire process. But I'm thinking, you people didn't listen to anything. You know, it's almost like, you know, you don't care. And, yeah. and it's basically somebody killed this guy and this guy is good enough to, you know, pay the, pay the, the penalty price. for it, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, so it was like, but if I was related to them or if it, it was their relatives sitting in that seat or, you know, sitting at that defense table, they would have had a whole different perspective. You know, the judge would have, if it was his nephew or yeah. son or the daughter, the prosecutor, the police, all those folks, you feel differently when it's your relative. But since I'm just someone, I'm insignificant to those folks. It's like, okay, he just, he's another black guy, poor. Uh, he don't have a good defense. Well, well, you know, he it's another one off the streets, basically. You know, so they, they, they didn't care. And uh, and so when the jury came back that quick, it told me they didn't care either. They didn't care. You know, and somebody's got to pay for it. They we're satisfied the victim's family because uh, you know, they at least see somebody got convicted for killing their loved one. So what are the steps that happen after that? Well, it's a long process. They you know, they I argued with the judge. I just want to say this here too, also for the record, as I told the judge that he was allowing those people to frame me and that he was a part of it. And uh, I was going to fight this case till I proved that I was innocent. Of course, he, you know, was upset when he, he let me speak and he blasted me, but I didn't care. Uh, he turned as red as a Chinese flag. But if, if I wasn't so dark, he would have known how red I was with anger and rage. Mm-hmm. But uh, the process then, I, I got sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary. Time Magazine described Missouri State Penitentiary as the bloodiest 47 acres in America Yes, at one time. and that, Which is closed well, down was, now, by the way. I think they closed it it's in closed, uh, it closed years in 2004. Ago. Yeah. yeah, 2004. And um, I was a young father. My girl had just had a, a child. I had just enrolled in college. This is 1984. I was going to go to college for business administration, sociology, but the daughter, she was seven months. I saw her three times. Didn't see my little girl again for 25 years. Mm. And so I get into this prison and come through these prison doors and they open these, these big black gates and it, everything went in slow motion, even though it was in real time. But yeah. it's like, it was just, you had a feeling. Every man on that bus, we all stopped talking and just looked. And we knew this is going to be a different experience. It's like you've been transported from one dimension into another. And we got inside of this prison, we got these shackles, five-point shackles, two on our wrists, black boxes, one on the waist, two on the ankles. And we saw this huge banner. It said, welcome to the Missouri State Penitentiary. Leave all your hope, family, and dreams behind. Wow. And it was like entering to uh, Dante's Inferno. He who, leave, who, he who enters her will not leave alive. Basically, you're going to die in here. No hope. No hope for you. And they meant that. And the family can't help you. 
and the dreams will be nightmares. And so in the process of getting out, I can tell you a whole lot of stories about what it's like to be in that place when you're just dealing with mayhem and chaos and stabbings and, and killings. That's what I'm seeing all the time. Well, like let's the let's walk through that a little bit, Daryl, because you're walking into a situation yeah. where you're an innocent man being drug into one of the worst prisons in the United States that they had to close down. What, what was, as you walk in and, and, and you get prisonized, which they do to you, uh, how do you walk into that world? Yeah, well, you know, my mindset was I'm, I'm angry at the system uh, for what a handful of people did to me. I hated everybody part of the system anywhere in the world. So I'm angry and my mindset was, you know, they took my freedom from me. No one's gonna take my manhood because in prison, God's gonna challenge you for your manhood, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and your money. And so that was my mindset, you know, uh, for before God tried to make me into his, you know, any kind of property, any kind of way, you know, you're gonna have to kill me. That was, that was just, you know, that was uh, what you call no negotiation, no discussion. But uh, you get in and they strip you down, take, tell you take all your clothes off, 30, 40 guys, and you get naked right there in front of 30, 40 men. And they spray you with some kind of Lysol, a book repellent, and uh, every part of your body that has hair, tell you to shower off, and then they assign you prison identification number. The number they assigned me was 153063. It stepped on everything that was connected to me. And I had on pants, socks, coats, shirts, underclothes. And I hated it. I mean, it's degrading and dehumanizing. You know, yeah, you just you, you're nothing but a number. Uh, rarely would they call me by my whole name, Daryl Burton. I don't think I ever heard no one call. I'll me Never by call that you name. by your no, first name. Never the first name. Burton one five three zero six three. That's where they address me, and I wouldn't answer to that call over the intercom system. Sometime and the guards would be upset, and they'd come and say, "Didn't you hear your number being called?" I said, "No, I heard your number being called." I'm not a number, you know, my name is Daryl Burton. And so, and they would say, we're gonna put you in the hole. I was put me in the hole, man, I'm already in the hole. This whole prison is a hole. Like I said, when I got there, I was angry, man. I'm, yeah. I'm innocent, so I know I shouldn't have been there. So I was rebelling. I was getting a, what you call a lot of write-ups, and, you know, CDs, CDVs, conduct violations. I won't say a lot of them, but I got some disobeying orders mm-hmm. because I, I, I wasn't big on taking orders. Uh, and I knew that wasn't the wise thing to do. I knew I was gonna have to try to figure out ways where I could stay uh, at least in population where I could go to the law library because that was my focus. I said, I got to get to the law library. I got to learn about the law because I knew the law put me here. It's going to take the law to get me out of here. I knew that much. I just didn't know how because I wouldn't, I'm not a lawyer. Well, I think the interesting and, and really inspiring part of this story is, is you were an angry man and, and, and justly so to be an angry man. But what I think is inspiring about your story and for people listening to this is that you never gave up on your innocence. You know, a lot of people can take victimhood and go ball up in a fetal position, feel sorry for themselves and give up. And you didn't do that, Daryl. What I read was is that, yes, you were an angry man and, and rightly so, but you started studying the law. You started writing letters to senators, to congressmen, and uh, the name of the the group that took on innocence projects. I, I don't have. It. No, no, it's Centurion. Centurion, Centurion Ministry. Yes, you yeah. begin writing to them, and you didn't. And, and and I think one of the times they said, "Well, we're not going to be able to get to your your case for maybe ten years or more," and you continued to write them consistently write them, consistently write everybody. And, you know, I think what nobody knows what they would do in a situation like that. Nobody knows until they're in that situation. But there was something burning within you that chose you to be the person that you are that you didn't give up. Because if you would have given up, Daryl, you'd be there right now. I mean, there, there, there's no doubt that if you hadn't have written the letters and you wouldn't have continued to, to represent yourself, to educate yourself on who I should write to, how I should write to them, how I, and, and stay into that mantra, you'd still be in prison. It, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing because you have, you know, you know we, I, one of my favorite 
movies is Shawshank Redemption because, you know, you know, Red says you better get busy living and get busy dying. That's really the only thing you can do in prison. You get busy living and, and try to work your way into something or get busy dying. And you see those guys all over the place in prison somehow, some way. And I think this is the most interesting thing about your story is, is that you knew you were wrongly accused of a murder that you did not convict or you did not commit, but you didn't give up on it. You didn't give up on it. What do you think that was? I mean, what, what do you think that is? Because so many people given that situation would say, I give up, I give up. Yeah, Brett, you're right. And there's a lot of guys who do give up. Uh, like I said, it was, I used my anger. I was so angry at the system and the judge in that I said, you know, that's when I told him I'm going to fight this case and I'll prove that I'm innocent. So I had something to prove. I had something to prove and, and anger now, don't get me wrong, I almost went in the, the wrong direction a few times yeah. with that anger, and which could have cost me to be there or to get killed or whatever uh, in that prison. I mean, I had to fight. You know, I went in 147 pounds, man. I, you know, I had I had to pump some iron. I had to, you know, which dudes told me, said, man, you're going to have to beef up in here, partner, because we got some big dudes in there, man, yeah. huge. And so uh, 147 pounds, you know, a couple of guys come at you, you know, you know, 210 and, you know, solid as a rock. What are you going to do? You know, uh, you can fight as best as you can. So uh, my anger, man, was that compelled me, like you said, to, you know, to get into the law books and start reading the law and, and uh, studying the law. And then you had a few other guys also was in the law library fighting their cases. I didn't know if they was innocent or not. And I didn't hardly talk about my innocence because, see, people say. Everybody well, they says they're innocent. innocent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's until you get convicted. In prison where I was at, most guys, they don't want to hear about you saying you're innocent. They're right. like, man, look, if you're innocent, prove it. Ain't nobody innocent in here. And that's the, really the general attitude. Right. A lot of guys say it didn't happen the way they said it happened, or I got too much time right. for what they said I did. Yeah. Most guys don't even talk about being innocent. Right. And, uh, and I didn't either, because right. you get into a debate, which is going to end up being a fight, because I know I'm innocent, and you telling me I'm not, I'm going to be mad, yeah. you know? But... Yeah. uh. Yeah, I began to write these letters, man. I began to, you know, file these motions, these pleadings, these briefs. I kept getting denied, denied, denied. Could have been my middle name, Daryl Denied Burton. But uh, <laughs> I didn't stop. I didn't stop filing these motions, man. All the way from state court, all the way to Supreme Court. And then, yeah, I wrote letters, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters, man, from the United States, Canada, Europe, Parliament, heads of states, presidents, governors, senators, representative Oprah Winfrey. Wrote the church. I wrote everybody you can think of, sports figures. If you came on TV and, uh, and they popped your name up there, whoever you was, and I felt like, hey, man, I need to get my message and my story to this person. I found out where you was located and I wrote to, you know, your organization. And that's what I did. And I, I did that. the Centurion. Yeah, I, I saw they was on TV in 60 Minutes during uh, 1990, doing a segment on a woman that got out of prison who served nine years she didn't commit. And I said, man, they helping innocent people get out of prison where well, they got to help me too. And in 1990, I wrote them and they wrote me back and said, yes, we, we free innocent people, but it'll be 10 years before we can get to your case. We so backlog, we take a, you know, we get a thousand requests every year. We take a couple of cases a year. And uh, they, I said, well, look, I got 75 years without parole. So I'm going to write you for 10 years. Mm. In my mind, if you take my case in 10 years and get me out, then I, 65 years, I won't have to do. You know, 60, 65, whatever the case may be. Right. And they took my case 10 years later in 2000 and got me out eight years after that, 2008. So it was 18 years from the first letter that I wrote to that organization. And I, and I kept seeing them get people out every year. That organization was getting somebody out, you know, in another state, you know, for, you know, crimes they didn't commit. I'm like, man, when is going to be my turn? When I, I, I got to be coming up at some point. But I had to do something do with I had to deal with that anger. I had to do something with that anger because I couldn't come out of that place as angry as I was while I was in that place. How did and you everybody in the is angry? Everybody's everybody's angry, angry. everybody's on edge. Yes. And yeah. uh, Daryl, how did you adjust to that new life? You know, that unfamiliar world? What how did you you know, you know, I know you went to the law library and you're writing, but you had to also exist in there. What what did you use any different type of strategies to, to make your days happen? Cause you were in there for 24 years. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the thing you, you know, to stay away from and certain things you got to avoid as best as you can. You can't totally avoid everything, 
But some things, you know, there's just going to be some troublemaker for you if you get involved in the prison hustle in the prison culture, you know, and that's getting involved in, you know, uh, same gender relationships and, you know, and trying to hustle and make money like that. And if you're getting involved in, you know, in, in the drugs and you're getting involved in gambling, if you're getting involved in buying and borrowing things from other prisoners, then you're setting yourself up for some, some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, my main focus was the law library. Now, I ain't going to say I didn't get involved in some, you know, I mean, what we call some hustle in prison because I knew I had to earn a little living in prison also. But I definitely wasn't going to get involved in dealing with, you know, trafficking in human beings. See, people traffic in human beings in prison. And that's the moneymaker, but that's also the most deadliest game in prison. You know, that's the game that gets you stabbed and gets you hurt and gets you killed quicker than anything. Uh, we don't, there are no women in prison, you know? And so guys are into other men and, and uh, they fight to the death over some other man's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, those are things, and no one had to tell me that, you know, uh, as I just looked, you know, around the prison, you know, I'm just, I, you know, I'm, I'm real observing, you know, and then I wasn't interested in it anyway, you know, I went in heterosexual, so that was, you know, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I just knew, you know, that just observing most of the stabbings and the fights, and the, it was happening over some relationship situation. Yeah. Uh, and the first day, in fact, the first day I got to this unit, first day I got to this unit, they locked us behind these JC gate. Man, the guy, we got our bed linen and closing our arms. The first day they locked that gate, boom. We walked 10 feet and man, we heard some rumbling. And turned and looked around and two guys were stabbing these two other guys. And there was about one guy trying to make another guy into his, you know, into his sex toy. Mm-hmm. And these guys, they was, you know, and they stabbing these guys. And uh, that was the first day, the day that I got released, the same day, day I got released. That was the first day in, yeah, in that prison. Like I say, it was the bloodiest 47 acres in America. But the day that I got released, Brent, which was August 29, 2008, they was rushing a man on this gurney to the prison hospital. Blood just running off this gurney, this rolling bed. Guy had cut his throat from it here, tried to decapitate him. That was the day that I left when I got exonerated and proven innocent. And so much more in between. It was... Man, it was hell on earth. That's the only way I can describe it. And yeah. I didn't go in a religious guy. I wasn't a believer in God. I mean, uh, but I do remember, I, I can tell you this quick story, is that a guy, he was walking around to all the new guys that, you know, came to the prison. And he was out like, you know, he wasn't a trustee. He wasn't a guard. He was an inmate. But, you know, some convicts got ways to move. But this guy was different. He was, he was strange. That's the only way I can describe him, right? And so he came to my cell. He went to a few other new guys. Said, oh, you want the new guys here, right? So I'm thinking he's sizing me up. So I'm on my defense. I'm on guard. I'm uncomfortable with talking to strangers in this place anyway. I said, yeah, well, what's up, man? What's going on? With, what's up with you? He said, well, I just want to tell you, you know, in this prison, uh, you're going to dance with the devil. That's what this guy was saying. And he looked, his eyes looked strange, you know. I said, look, man, I don't believe in the devil, hell, God. You know, I don't believe in none of that. You can get away from me with that. And he stepped closer to the cell and he pointed at that number that was over my left breast pocket. He said, oh, you don't believe in, in hell. You don't believe in the devil, huh? He pointed at that number. He said, yeah, well, the devil believes in you. And he started laughing hysterically, man, and walked away. And other guys started, you know, kind of chiming in, laughing with him. And man, and I looked at that number and, you know, 153063, and I added the one and the five together. That was six. The three and the three was six, and the zero to six, six, six was six. Six, 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 six man. And wow. the guy said, well, the devil believes in you. And wow. I thought about that. You know, you're going to dance with the devil. And he was right, because there was some times when I danced with uh, something that I knew was trying to take my life. Yeah. Well, let's walk through, because, I mean, once they did take your case, it took eight years can you kind of walk us through that process of what happened, Daryl? Because, I, I mean, I'm sure you were, I don't know what that would be, uh, elated that this this organization says, hey, we want you, we want your case, we believe in you. So that had to feel good. But then you know that there's this, they're not just going to let you out. you got <laughs> you got to fight for everything you have. How did that all work? Yeah, Brett, uh, you're right. When the organization Centurion took my case, man, it was the happiest day of my life because I was seeing them on the news, I mean, just frequently getting someone out. 
And when they came and took my case, they told me, said, Daryl, when we take your case and commit to your case, we're going to stay with your case till you're free. And they said that. They said, the only way we don't is if, you know, you're on death row or you get executed or you die in prison, God forbid, you get killed. They said, but we're going to stay with your case until we get you out. But it's going to take some time. That's what they told me. They set me up and said, look, this is not going to happen overnight. The average time it takes to get a person out is, you know, five, seven years or more. But we're going to fight till we get you out. We got to go back to look at all the evidence in the case, look at all the records, all the files. And, uh, and we got to go through it. I'm talking, they said, we're going to go through it line by line. And because uh, and what we've seen so far, give us clear indications that you're an innocent man. Yeah. And so that's what we've seen so far. But we got to go back and reinvestigate. So it's going to take time. And, uh, and they said, what we want you to do is stay out of trouble and give us your word. You won't do anything in this prison to keep us from getting you out. You know, that is get into a fight or yeah. get into a knife fight or hurt somebody or, or, or get hurt. And, uh, and when you come out, you're just going to live your life, you know, and be a good reflection, you know, for uh, for yourself. I said, you got my word. You know, I said, but uh, it's hard to promise you in prison. I got to survive in here, you know, and yeah. I got to do whatever it takes. You know, to save my life, and I ain't gonna let nobody. You know, if I can, I ain't gonna let nobody hurt me. Yeah. You know, so I, and that's what I told him. I said I'm gonna do my best. You know, but uh, I'm in prison. It's different than you as than what you are on the streets. How many how many turndowns did you get, Daryl, through this process? As far as writing people and no, no. And when, when they, once they took your case, I know that I think it went. Oh man! All yeah, the was, way through, it, it, I think. Maybe the yeah, Supreme Court. Yes, yes. When always the Supreme Court. Yeah, we got turned down. I mean, just one after another. Uh, when they took my case and started filing motions with the court, the federal court, state court, local courts, Supreme Court, and then eventually came back to a state court. And uh, and after eight circuit court of appeals said, you know, and I'm gonna quote them a little bit verbatim. Uh, the judge. They said, that yeah. A ju three judge panel said, but my case troubled them. They said. They, Facts in this case that's been unearthed, you know, it suggested Missouri convicted an innocent man with yeah. no small degree of reluctance. We deny Burton's risk, even though the facts suggest this man is innocent. And we hope through the state of Missouri, the, uh, through the judicial of the executive branch, take a second look at this case. That's what they said. Man, that crushed me. I, oh, mean, I can't imagine. I, I read that, Daryl. I couldn't believe. I mean, this judge went a whole paragraph yeah. of basically saying that you're wrongly convicted. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, lawyers from around the country said they had never read an opinion like that, even to this day. You know, a guy wrote a book and put my case, you know, in his book. And he's talked about that. They, they said, man, this is one of the craziest, you know, opinions they've ever written, they've ever read. And uh, and I couldn't believe it. And then my lawyers, they seemed like they was excited, you know, getting an opinion like that. I mean, they was <laughs> I mean, they weren't slapping high fives necessarily, not in front of me. But man, and uh I heard afterward that they cried like a baby because they, they didn't understand, you know, why they, those judges could write something like that and not grant me relief. So then, uh, an, op then an opening happens, right, with the Missouri Supreme yeah. Court that somebody was released and they, the, this organization saw an opening that this could work for you. Is that correct? Well, there was a Supreme Court decision, a Sloop versus D-Lo, Okay. which he was on death row and that case got overturned. And the lawyer who argued that case in the Supreme Court is Sean O'Brien, okay. which is a member of a miracle of innocence uh, on our board. But that case, be that case became the gateway to let, you know, state prisoners present new evidence and a constitutional violation to present that back to a state court judge and uh, or a federal judge. That was the gateway. Yeah. That got me back in front of a, uh, a state judge, a judge who, by the way, was the one who put Sloop on death row. The same judge. This was, and then when you went back to the state judge, was that uh, Callahan at the time? Yeah, yeah, that was Callahan. Yeah, Judge Callahan. And he was the one who had prosecuted the Sloop case and put Sloop on death row. And the case got reversed at the Supreme Court. And, uh, <laughs> and it was the same judge I was going in front of. And the lawyers was telling me, Daryl, we just don't know. You know, yeah. this is what you call a long shot of all long shots. And this is your last opportunity in any court to get relief because, man, we don't know where else we're going to go if this judge don't grant you uh, your freedom. And I said, let me pray for y'all right now. I had become a Christian and believer by then. I said, man, let me pray for y'all in this courtroom right now because, 
it's going to be bigger than you all. This is going to be God's doing. Uh -huh. That's what I believe. So, and uh, yeah, and the judge and Judge Callahan did it. He re granted me relief. Wow. Praise God. And I mean, I just can't imagine, Daryl, after all that time, what you must have been thinking when that happened. Well, man, I can tell you what I was thinking. Uh, and it's one thing, and Jim McCusker says it best. I knew the truth, and the truth was going to forever be with me. Whether they let me go or not, I knew the truth. Yeah. But it's something else that I was seeking that I couldn't get in that world of chaos, and I had to figure out how to get it, and that was peace. Mm -hmm. And I got it from one verse in the Bible, and that's when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke's Gospel 23, 34. That one verse began to transform my heart because I'm saying this guy was innocent. It's yeah. at least eight or nine times when they said he was innocent, they executed him, and he was forgiving these people on the cross yeah. at the point of death. And I said, if this guy can forgive at the point of death, then I'm in the land of living, so at least I can begin to try. So, but that was the beginning of, you know, because I had to do, deal with that rage and that hate, but yeah. then that was the beginning and having me and asking me or challenging me to pray for people I hated, even my enemies. So that's when things begin to start to turn for me internally, internally, because that's what I was seeking. I was seeking internal peace. So whether they let me go or not, 10 years before I got out, I had found this peace that I had been seeking. I was free inside me and gave all my stuff away. Guys that felt, man, this guy, he got on this God, Jesus kick. He's he losing it. <laughs> I gave all my crazy stuff away <laughs> twice. <laughs> so those guys, of course, they took it. I said, man, look, <laughs> sure they did. Yeah, they took it. So, Daryl, when that happens, because I, I don't think people even know how that happens. When you when you get exonerated by the court, what happens that day? What Where do you go? What happens? Well, the, you know, when I didn't know I was getting out that day. Yeah. I had went on and when, you know, you have your regular routine detail. When they when they do, they count. They count, you know, every two hours. And so they count. That was, you know, about six o'clock for the seven o'clock detail. They open the gates and say, okay, you guys, whoever going to work, go to work, work call. You're going to school, whatever you're doing. So I went to my regular 730, went to my assigned job. Mm -hmm. And this caseworker came to me with a sheet of paper, had one sheet of paper, and he had this real intense look on his face. And man, and you know, when that look is on a caseworker's face and he got a piece of paper, it's not I'm good. going to the hole. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a good scenario. But this time it was different. And he said, Daryl, I need to talk to you right away. And he was frowning all up. And I'm like, okay, man, I'm saying to myself, here we go again. Cause I've been to the whole, you know, I've been, you know, sure. through the whole gamut. And he said, well, look, this lady pulled me in the business office this morning. Did you know Daryl Bird was going home and she was firm with me and I need some information right now. I said, what? Wait a minute, man. And I was, you know, it was surreal. And I wasn't believing him cause I had all, I mean, yeah. I had been, you know, like you say, seesaw. One yeah. day it would seem like the court's going to rule in my favor and then, the bottom fall out. But then a few minutes later, here come the warden of the prison. He came. So both of these guys are saying this to me and I'm, I'm still not believing it. So the warden said, look, just go back to your housing unit and uh, pack your stuff. And it was on a Friday. He said, look, and I, I just say this here, don't call your mom or anybody yet, you know, because I need to get an email. If they're not gonna retry you. And if they're gonna, you know, say they dropping this case, then I'm gonna release you today. You're gonna be a free man today. If they're going to retry you, they can take you back to St. Louis. Yeah. And I said, oh, man, okay. I, I said, I believe it when I see it. He said, well, just go back. I said, I need to call at least call my lawyers. Yeah. He said, well, okay, call your lawyers. And that's what I did. I went back to the housing unit, and I was calling the lawyers. The third call, I was because lawyers, it's about 830 now. They don't get to their office at like 10, some yeah. of them. And uh, he came in. Here come the warden again. And he had this huge smile on his face with his hand extended and said, congratulations, Daryl, you've been exonerated, you're an innocent man. We got to get you out of this prison ASAP. Oh, you know? And I said this here, I said, well, man, let me just shower and say goodbye to the guys. You know, mm -hmm. now some folks said, man, you should have been hurried up, man, I wanted to shower. I said, I'm gonna take me a shower, yeah. you know, I just, I mean, I went to work, I didn't do a whole lot of work, but that was my routine. Yeah. And it was gonna be the last time, you know, that uh, I showered in that place. And I told my roommate, my bunkie, cellmate, I said, hey man, pack my stuff. I'm out of here. I'm 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 a free man today. I'm innocent. And uh and of course the, the five minutes, the whole housing unit of 275 men knew. In five minutes, within an hour, the whole prison knew. Everybody in the whole camp knew I was uh exonerated and found innocent. Wow, yeah. Daryl. Unbelievable. So you walk out of there and it's been 24 years. 
How do you how do you leave? It was hard to process. It was surreal, and uh, and I had two guards. You know, they both was you know one had the cart. He was pushing the cart with my belongings on it, and they both were just peppering me with a lot of questions. You know, Darrell, what you gonna do as soon as you get out? You know, you are you going to see your mom, or you going to eat something? You know, peppering yeah. me with all kind of questions. I said, man, you know, fellas, I don't know. I haven't been out there in almost quarter of a century. Yeah, I don't know what I'm gonna <laughs> do. You know, uh, and I really didn't. No. And so. And I'm listening at them, but I had to ask myself those questions too. Sure. You know, I asked myself where I'm going to live, you know, uh, how long is it going to take me to get a job? You know, I'm asking myself all these old questions. I mean, what kind of work can I do? You know? And, yeah. and then they asked me, of course, you know, man, you, do you have a girlfriend? And you got, I said, no, I don't have a girlfriend, man. I've been into, you know, I've been want a woman to put a life on hold. You know, I don't know when I was getting out, but, uh, and then they got me in what's called this behind the control center area, put me behind this, Huge window pane. It went from floor to ceiling. Huge, you know, it looked like it was 10 feet tall. And guys who, they couldn't come where I was and I couldn't go back to where they was. But they would come up, you know, and they would maybe be, I don't know, a few yards from me, 20, 30 yards. And they would just, you know, was telling me goodbye. See you, darling, and pounding their chest yeah. and throwing up peace signs. It was you your know. world. Yeah, I, I grew up with those guys, yeah. man. You know, yeah. I, I grew up with them. Yeah, for 25 years. So that's who I knew. That's, you know, I knew these guys. We grew up when we was kids, you know, yeah. when they learned, you know, yeah, as, as kids, man. So yeah, I, I, that's that was my world. That's what I knew. What my world it was their world, but I had to survive and live in it. Yeah. You know, and you did. Yeah. You adapted and survived and, and got out and got yeah. exonerated. It, it's just an incredible story. So, Daryl, so you get out, what, and I know there's a thousand things spinning around in your mind because reentry is one of the tougher things. And, it, it, you know, I think every year that goes by when you're in prison, I think reentry becomes that much more difficult. How did you reenter society? Well, I had some, I had some support. Uh, I didn't have any support that came from the state. The state didn't give me anything, didn't compensate me. You know, because it has to be DNA, right? Is that what you told me? That's Missouri, Missouri DNA. Yeah, they everything DNA. else you don't get compensated for. It takes twenty four years. You don't have any DNA. We can't yeah, give you anything. Yeah, not yeah. in Missouri. Missouri don't do anything for you. You yeah. know, no four one k, no social security, nothing like that. No. no retirement pension. Thank you for the twenty four. Yeah, not even a job offer. You know, yeah. they don't give me a job offer, uh, Brent. Nothing. Yeah, and so trying to reintegrate back into society. Like I said, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I found a church, a church home. Some church folks began to help me and other folks. You know, I was on television a lot and I started going around speaking. That's how I made a living. I was speaking because mm -hmm. I couldn't get a job for two years. No one would hire me. I had no work skills. I finally got an interview and I said, man, if I could just get an interview with somebody and I can tell them my story because sure. then I had filling out applications on a computer online. I had never done that before. So everything, the whole world was different. Cell phones, you know, technology. It was a, a challenge for me, and reintegrating back into society was hard. It, yeah. it's, it's not easy for anyone who's been gone for any length of time. Uh, you know, I don't understand my family. They don't understand me. Some of them look at me just like I've been on a long vacation. I'm back. Everything's normal. No, no. I mean, I, I'm dealing with some trauma, yeah. and uh, I got PTSD. Mm -hmm. Certain, you know, I couldn't go around crowds. That made me nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, certain things were triggers for me. It was a lot of things that I was trying to adjust to. You know, I mean. People cutting in front of you in line out here, you know, I'm like, you couldn't do that in prison. <laughs> no. you know I mean, you know, you no, know, you couldn't do that in prison. You couldn't cut in front of somebody in prison without it, it was going to be a confrontation. But out here, it's just like, oh, who are you? You know, and I'm like, man, it's, it's, it's different. Here. It's different. Yeah. People talking crazy to you out here. It's just it's a level of respect in prison that you're going to get, whether you earned it, deserve it or not, because guys, they don't want to underestimate you. Right. You know, and uh, and they know if you, you know, and now some guys do disrespect anybody. Yeah. But by and large, most of the folks, you know, and they're going to, you know, try respect. to be at peace. Yeah, yeah they're going to try to be at peace with you. But out here, yeah, so I, so I a lot of triggers, man, a lot of triggers and a lot of things uh, that uh, even now I've been out for, you know, over a decade now. I still have struggles out here, and even to this day. I've, I've been out 14 years. What do you think is your biggest uh, struggle it, after being out for a decade? What's the thing that, that hits you? Control. It just, you know, seemed like, you know, everything is controlled and it's controlling me. You know, it's like I, I got to make these different, you know, I got to make these 
what I would call other folks, you know, I'm on other folks' agenda all the time. Just like in mm-hmm. prison, you're on their agenda. Mm-hmm. So I'm on other folks' agenda all the time, you know. Uh, okay, Daryl, get over here, do this. Daryl, be here, be here. Daryl, be there, you know. And it's like, uh, that's what it was in prison, you know. It's just, <laughs> you know, be here, get over there, go over there, out of bounds, you know. I mean, like, it's, I said, man, it's like, you know, uh, a lot of things. Uh, and, and a lot of things that I just don't understand technology-wise. It's a struggle. I didn't. You know, it gave a flip phone in my hand. I, don't, I mean, I don't understand technology. I don't, this, this stuff is, uh, I'm still struggling with it. Just like with this computer stuff, getting online and Zoom, I'm a whole lot better now <laughs> since COVID. You know, I had to learn yeah. it. Yeah, but this is well. The whole world uh, changed. I, I mean, you know, there was no internet. There was, you know, when you exactly. got out in two thousand eight, the iPhone had just been born. You know, Facebook I think was born in two thousand four. All those things that happened uh, happened right. while you were behind the walls. And you know, it's, right. you know, I always say, you know, getting out of prison is like trying to jump into a moving car. You know, you and, yeah. and I think one of the things that maybe is the most misunderstood because there's no way. Daryl, that I can identify with 24 years. You know, I was sentenced to five years. and um, But one of the things I can identify with is that you want to plug back into the world and all these things are going on in your head. Are you happy and elated and excited and like a five-year-old going down the stairs when Santa Claus is there on Christmas Day? Absolutely. But you also have these other things going around, like, where am I going to get a job? How am I going to plug back into the family? What have they been doing since I've been gone? Can I get back in? Am I going to be a burden? Am I, you know, all these different things that are just flying around and you have to try to plug into those things immediately. It's not like, you know, they give you, okay, we're going to, we're going to let you out. And then for the next, you know, year, we're going to slow walk you into this, program that we have for you to get out of prison. No, they just plug you in and say, let's go. So I think it's just incredible what you've been able to do as you were able to get through all of that, get back into society. Can you tell us a little bit now about what you're doing as Daryl Burton? Cause I know you and I talked about, you've got a book coming out. I know that you, you went through, well, just tell me what all you've been doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Brent. Yeah. Since I've been home, I was able to, you know, uh, assimilate back into society as best as I can. I, you know, started a family, got married, and uh, went back to school, went to school for uh, uh, seminary school, St. Paul School of Theology, and earned a degree in divinity, a master's degree in divinity, uh, which was hard because uh, of technology. Yeah. Uh, I could read the books and do the, you know, curriculum study, but the technology, I almost quit three times because of the technology. They end up in a church called Resurrection, Church of the Resurrection, United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, <coughs> which is the largest Methodist church in the United States. And uh, I'm one of the associate pastors there. And then me and uh, another exoneree, Lamont McIntyre, we started this you know, organization, a nonprofit called Miracle of Innocence. And so what we do is help other innocent people get out of prison. But something you just said, Brent, is that you know, the, yeah, getting out of prison, that's one step, but what do you do and how do you reintegrate, you know, assimilate back into society? Well, our program helps people when they get out, you know, we help them get out and help them once they come home. We help them with getting identification, transportation, communication, you know, job placement, uh, counseling services, whatever that need is, we help them with that because, you know, it's it's like a culture shock. You could have dropped me in the middle of Japan (laughs) and not figure it out, you know, on your own. Uh, and so we walk with them as mentors, you know, and help them because, man, I mean, they got a lot of resources for people who committed the crime when they come home. And I wouldn't ask for some help. And they told me, we can't help you. You don't fit. We help the guilty. Yeah, you, you're innocent. We, you know, it's like somebody walking off the streets and asking for a resource from us. We'll get lose our funding. You got to start an innocent program for you guys. We can't help you. That's what they told me. Yeah. I said, well, man, I did 25 years. They said, yeah, we know that, but we're sorry. You know, now they help innocent people, too. So they want the funding for that as well. But when I got out, they wouldn't help me. So uh, and that's what I said. You know, we're going to start a program to help them get out and help them once they come home. I and love that. And, uh, and and you're dubbed as the miracle man on, on uh, the Internet. You know, the, the, <laughs> but the, yeah. your, your projects. So just so people know how to donate, because I think what you're doing is so cool, yeah. Daryl. Uh, it's yeah, called the miracle, uh, yeah. the miracle of Innocence, right? 
Miracleofinnocence.org. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody who wants to donate to that, you can actually go to Daryl's, you can actually type in Daryl Burton and go to his homepage on his website. And uh, it's got a, it's got a place there that you can actually, it says donate um, to free the innocent. So it's, I just think it's so cool what you've been able to do because so much about what this show is about is, you know, being able to get through your nightmare, but then to be able to use it. And, you know, Daryl, you've lived that. You have lived that. You didn't give up, and you could have. You didn't give up when you got out because the technology and everything. You said you probably felt like quitting three times, but you got through that. Now you're one of the or the biggest Methodist church. I can't imagine how good of a a minister you are, a preacher. I mean, for somebody to share, you know, the vulnerabilities of what you've gone through and to have the forgiveness in your heart to will yourself to understand what that means. um, Man, it's it's just really powerful stuff. And Daryl, you know, I always ask people this on this show, going through the journey that you've gone through, because this isn't something that you signed up for. You didn't know this was going to happen to you in your life, but you lived it and you are the man you are now because of it. What do you think is your biggest takeaway from all these things that you've went through? Well, uh, the biggest takeaway, I don't know if it's a single biggest takeaway. Uh, What I will say, and maybe it is, is that, I have a conscious contact with God now, a higher power. I went in as an unbeliever, and nothing was going to change that had I not gone into that prison, which was hell on earth. Mm-hmm. I had swore off. I grew up in the Baptist faith tradition, and I had literally swore off any religious community that was organized, was not going to accept it. And I got in that place, and I said, man, all this evil and all this hell has got to be an opposite to this because, boy, this is, this is bad. nothing... Yes, this is nothing like, and I don't wish this on anyone, my worst enemy. And so uh, that was the probably the you know the thing that gave me peace. The yeah. thing that I was you found peace. probably at the top. Yeah, yeah, that's that's at the top, you know. And even right now, being back into society, and you said, you know, the journey. Well, the journey is not over. Yeah. I'm still on the journey. You're on the journey, I'm still man. Still on the journey. And uh, and the second biggest thing, or next to the biggest thing, is that. I've learned how to deal with adversity and power through it with perseverance. Uh, and that's what that taught me. It taught me that, you know, no matter how tough things can get, and it's going to be tough for a lot of us in life, if not all of us yeah. in life, just power through it. And I just say something quickly that a guy came into prison. He was an outside guest. You know, you get outside guests come in and talk to prison. Something he said that was key that kind of held me. Uh, held me together in the times I was really in low places. And he was talking to a group of uh, prisoners. He said, look, you guys, I know this is hell on earth. You guys, this is depressing. Being in prison is no fun at all. He said, but I want to challenge you guys to don't give up and don't quit five minutes before your miracle happened. Mm. I remember that guy said that, you know, and I, and I, I held it into my heart and my head because I couldn't look out five years. That was too far, too yep. long, or five days but I could do five minutes at a time. So a lot of that time I broke it down in five minute increments, I love five that. minute increments. I love yeah. that. Cause everything in prison, you go out five years, that's way too much. That's overwhelming. But can you, can you win yeah. the day? Can you win the day and get through it? Daryl, you know, I, I am, I am so honored that you were able to make time to do this. I've been excited to, I've told my family, we had, I had my family over the weekend. I said, I can't wait to interview Daryl. And, uh, man, your story, it's inspiring. And, you know, people, people build, build up prisons in their own mind and they can knock them down if they can do what you did. You just keep stepping through that, keep knocking it down. Keep, and, and like you said, you, you can get through it. You know, nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be. And, and you just, you find, you found a way, you just found a way and you kept finding a way. And now you know, and like you, and, and if anybody, again, I want to make sure that everybody's got, it's Daryl Burton, type it in. You can go to his website. It's got all kinds of stuff on there um, and, and be able to donate to the um, Miracle of Innocence. 
you've been able to listen to the the, uh, the miracle man here today. Um, and Daryl, you do have a book coming out, right? Yes, I do. Innocent, a second look is coming. That's I like it. So look for that. Look for that, folks. Innocent, a second look. Yeah. Innocent, second look. Uh, and if anybody else is looking it's for it's innocent, innocent colon a second look. Got it. Innocent. Yeah. Colon a second look. Right. Love it, Daryl. Uh, if anybody else is looking for a book out there, Daryl's is coming out. I've got one. Uh, Nightmare Success, Loyalty, Betrayal, Life Behind Bars, Adapting, Finally Breaking Free. Um, for those out there, love love the feedback, love the likes on social media, comments. Please go to, to Apple and uh, leave a review. That helps out the show for the, how they promote it. If you want to know, leave me a message, uh, brentcassie.com, all kinds of stuff there. As I used to uh, say when I was typing my emails back when I was in prison, stay strong. I'll do the same. Nightmare success in and out. Daryl Burton, thank you so much, man. Hey, Brett, thank you, man. It's awesome. Appreciate Great, it. Uh, spend time with you. Appreciate it.